to One Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. And turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I've got my big Bible today. Look at this. This is my big Bible. It's a dangerous Bible. Better behave yourself today. But Luke chapter 5. And uh, we are in a series that we're calling Come and See. And uh, we're talking about the, the attractiveness of the kingdom of God, the, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And kind of the big idea is this, that when we are living in the kingdom of God, when we are following Jesus, our lives will become attractive to other people. How many of you agree with that? How many of you want more attraction in your life? If you're sitting by someone that does not want to be attractive, just get up right now, find a new neighbor, a more attractive neighbor. No, we're not talking about physical attraction. We're actually talking about something much deeper than that. And so I want to look at this story in Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 5. We're going to read at verse 27 down to 32. I love this story. This is Jesus as he's beginning to call his followers to come follow him. In verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, it says this, After these things... He went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Notice he didn't just follow him in his heart. There was some action behind it, right? He left all and he followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. He threw a party And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples. There goes the religious people always criticizing Jesus, always going on Yelp, leaving a bad review, uh, always criticizing everything that Jesus did. And they complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, listen to this, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous or those who think they are righteous, those who think they are well. I've not called the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you that your word is alive today. Lord, thank you. This is more than ink on paper, but Father, it is living and active. And Lord, we pray today that as we come around your word, God, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that is open and receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at several accounts throughout the book of Luke that are accounts of attraction. We've looked at moments in the life of Jesus that people were drawn into following Jesus. The first week we looked at the story of the woman at the well. She had this encounter with Jesus that just started with a conversation. Just started with kind of small talk about water and then moved to the deeper issues of life and ultimately the longings that she had in her heart for relationship and acceptance. And by the end of the story, the Bible says that many people, all of the town, came out and began following Jesus. Last week, we looked at the story of Zacchaeus. 
a wee little man. And the Bible says that Jesus was walking down the street one day and he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And Jesus went and he sat down over a meal. And the Bible doesn't tell us what was said at that meal, but by the end of the meal, there was a total transformation in the life of Zacchaeus. In fact, Jesus said it this way, today salvation has come to this house. And here we find another story, another account of attraction. Jesus has this interaction with Levi, as the scripture says here, who's also called Matthew. So if I say Levi and then I say Matthew, I'm talking about the same person today, okay? I'll try to keep it straight, but in case you get confused, he's the same guy, okay? And um, so Jesus went by Levi and he called him and then immediately Levi has this party and all of the tax collectors and sinners are drawn to this moment. They are drawn to Jesus. The Bible says a great number of tax collectors and others came to Jesus. It was not just a party. It was, it was a good party. It was a full house party. All of these people, and these would be the people, just as a reminder, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, these would be the people that would fall under the least likely category, followers of Jesus. I shared with you last week that a, a tax collector, as Zacchaeus was last week, in this time was the worst of the worst in society. In fact, every time that group of tax collectors is mentioned, it's almost mentioned synonymously with sinners, tax collectors and sinners were thought of as one in the same, or to, to, to uh, emphasize the point of their sinfulness, they would say not just sinners, but tax collectors. And, and when they said tax collectors, the crowd went, ooh. And that's what was happening in this moment. All of these tax collectors were drawn to Jesus. And here's what I, I want to show you today. I, I want to ask you this question. What was it that drew these people to Jesus, What was it that caused them to be drawn into the presence of Jesus? And here's what I want you to see. It was the transformation in the life of Levi. It was a transformation that happened in the life of Levi. As Levi left his tax office, as he left uh, the, the world that he knew, the world that he lived in, and he began to follow Jesus, there was a buzz that began to spread around town. Have you heard what happened to Levi? Have you heard what Levi is doing? I, I heard Levi has left, he, he's left the game. I heard he's following Jesus now. I, I, I've heard that there's a total transformation in his life. I, I, I'll believe it when I see it, maybe another one said. There was a transformation in the life of Levi. People were drawn to Jesus because of the transformation in the life of Levi. And I want to say this to you today, as we begin Alpha, as we begin this season of sharing the good news of Jesus with people who are far from Jesus, I want you to know this, that we should never underestimate the power of the transformation that has happened in your life to transform the life of others. Let me say that again, never underestimate the power of the transformation that has happened in your life. Never underestimate the way that God can use that to transform the life of other people. You see, people can argue about a lot of things. 
People can debate theology, they can, they can discuss philosophy, they can debate ethics and morality, but there is one thing that people cannot argue with, and it is the transforming power of God in your life. It's the work of God that has transformed you from what you used to be to what you're, you are today and ultimately into who you're going to be. They can't argue with that. They may disagree with your ideas. They may disagree with your message, but they cannot argue with the transformation that's happened in your life. You see, ultimately, the gospel, the good news of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ ultimately is about transformation. It's about transformation. You see, on a macro level, the Bible says that God is transforming all of creation. God is at work in all of creation. He is restoring all of creation back to himself. That means that God's at work in the sphere of education. Teachers should say amen. God is at work in the sphere of medicine. God is at work that you're getting better now. Thank you, guys. God is at work in the sphere of business. God's at work in the sphere of entertainment. Every place that you find yourself, God is at work transforming that, that sphere, transforming the world in order to bring what the Bible calls the kingdom of God into the world. That's the story of the gospel. God is transforming the world. But on the micro level, you see, at the grassroots level, the good news of the gospel is not just that God is transforming the world, it's that God is transforming you. It's that God is transforming individuals. It's that God is bringing new life into the hearts of men and women. You see, the gospel is cosmic in its implication, but it's personal in its application. It's cosmic in that God is moving around the world. Every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, he is at work in those places, but ultimately the application comes down to a man and a woman, a boy and a girl whose lives have been transformed by the love and the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel that God changes people. And I don't know if that seems good to you, but that seems good to me because I know that I need some transformation. I know that there's some things in my life and there have been some things in my life that are not the way that they should be and the way that I want to be, but they're also not the way they're going to be because God transforms people. Jesus said it this way, you must be born again. You must be born again. In other words, there's got to be something that happens on the inside of you that causes this new life to flow out of you. The Apostle Paul, who was a man who understood what the transformation was, said it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All of this is from God. What an awesome, awesome story that God is making all things new. He's at work in our lives to bring his purpose to pass. At the core or at the grassroots level, the gospel and the work of God in the world is not about memorizing a body of doctrine. It's about a life that's been transformed by the love of God. 
That's the work of God in the world. And here we find Levi. Uh, Levi's life is transformed. Levi has experienced a total transformation. And other people say, i got to go see what's happened to Levi. I'm just drawn. I've got to know. I'm just curious. I'm not into the Jesus thing, but something's happened to Levi, and I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Question. I've got some questions, right? I've got some questions. And, and maybe if Levi could tell his story, you see, he doesn't in this passage, but maybe Levi would tell his story like this. Maybe his story of transformation would come like this, or the story behind the story. Maybe he would say something like this, I was never accepted by people. I just never felt like I was good enough, like anyone really wanted me. I lived life with a sense that something was lacking, that something in my life just wasn't complete. So I decided that if I couldn't be good enough, I was just going to be bad. So one day, I went down to the tax office and enlisted to be a tax collector. He didn't really write this. This is my dramatic interpretation, okay? <laughs> One day I went down to the tax office and I enlisted to be a tax collector for the Roman government, something I never thought I would do. It took some getting used to at first. I ran with some bad people. I did some bad things, but I made some good money. I had everything I ever wanted, houses, women, respect, but one thing was still missing, love, love and acceptance. Then one day as I was sitting outside my office, a man passed by. I had heard of this man. People said he worked miracles, that maybe he was even the one who would save our nation. Well, I don't know about all of that, but he looked at me and he said two words, follow me. And as he said those words, our eyes met and I felt a wave of pure love wash over me. It was as if at that moment, everything that I had ever done wrong was washed away, as if I became a new person. His love and acceptance filled me with joy, unlike anything I had ever experienced. And in that split second, I made a decision to leave everything behind and to follow this man called Jesus. Now I've been following him for a couple of years, and I have discovered that what they say is true. He really does heal the sick. He's healed my sin-sick heart. And now all I want to do is to tell others that if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. That may be what Levi would tell us if he was here today. Why? Because it's the power of a transformed heart. It's the power of what the Bible calls being born again. And I find it ironic that this man who at one time had been the worst of the worst, the, the most immoral person that perhaps you could ever imagine, perhaps equal today to uh, you know, a human trafficker or perhaps a, a, a drug dealer that would intentionally kill people. That was the kind of person that Levi was. But I find it ironic that he is the very one that God used, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write the greatest words of moral encouragement that have ever been spoken, the words of Jesus that say this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The Bible does not tell us this, but I just have a feeling that as Levi wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe that his eyes were filled with tears running down his face because he knew who he once was and he knew who God had changed him to be today. And he knew that God was using him not because he was good, but because he was new, because God had transformed him. What an awesome, awesome reality, the life of Levi transformed by the love of God. But I want to ask you today, if God is transforming people, if the good news of the gospel at the grassroots level is ultimately that God changes people, how does God change people? That's a question that we need to answer. How does God change people? There's a lot of things that we could discuss but I want to get a little technical for a few minutes. Is that okay if we get technical? Because oftentimes I think we talk about God changing people, but we never stop to actually look at what the Bible says about how God changes people. And so we think that the change happens in a certain way, and perhaps when it doesn't happen that way, we think that, we're, that we've not really changed. But I want to give you some charts some diagrams. I think I sent them like last minute, so maybe we don't have them back there. But anybody excited about charts and diagrams this morning? Oh, whoa, yes, I like that. Thank you. All right, so I want to give you uh, just a, a little bit of an understanding. I, I would call it, if you're taking notes today, I know you all are, I would call this, that was a joke. I would call this the anatomy of transformation, okay? The anatomy of transformation. How do we actually change? How does somebody go from this Levi tax collector, rough guy that was driven by his love for money into this guy that pins these amazing words, blessed are the merciful? How does that happen? Well, first of all, we need to understand that human nature is a complex thing, right? Everybody says yes. Every, everybody, every man who's married to a woman says yes, it is a complex thing, right? I may be in hot, hot water. I just said that. But it is a complex and beautiful thing, okay? But how do we actually change? How does transformation happen in a person's life? Well, there's three aspects. The Bible teaches us there's three aspects to our human nature. The first aspect is what you're looking at here. I told you it's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. The first aspect is, is our body, right? It's our body, and that's the most obvious aspect of our nature. I mean, when you walked in today and I say, I saw Chad today, I saw Ethan today, I saw Tracy today, what I'm saying is I'm seeing their body. It's the physical expression, the physical uh, attribute of, of their self. It's the most, most obvious aspect of a person is their body. It's the way that we relate to the physical world. But our body also contains urges for gratification and pleasure. That's what woke you up and, and caused you to get breakfast today. There was, some, there was some urges in your body. There was hunger in your body, right? And so our body contains urges for gratification. Not only does it contain urges, but oftentimes our behaviors become automated in our body as what we often call habits, right? Everybody with me this morning? 
I know this is a little technical. I told you that, but we serve coffee before the services, so I expect you to stay awake. It, it contains these, these uh, behaviors become automated in the body as habits. That's why um, when you walked in here this morning, you w- did not have to think right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. At one point in time, you had to think that, right? You don't remember it, but at one point in time, you had to think right foot, left foot. But now you have learned how to walk, right? Now your body has developed these, these things that are relatively Uh, autonomous that happen without a whole lot of thought. And so that is the first aspect of our self is our body. And and oftentimes when we approach change, we try to enact change merely in our body. Everybody knows what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will know what I'm talking about on January 1st, right? Because everybody will try to make these changes on January 1st. I'm going to change what I do. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change my exercise. I'm going to change my sleep. Maybe I'm going to change my hairstyle. (laughs) Maybe I'll get a new outfit. Maybe I'll get a new job. (laughs) What are those things? (laughs) Those Those are physical changes, right? It's changing external things. And those things are good, right? How many of you feel good when you get a nice haircut? Come on. How many of you feel good when you get a new outfit? Right? You feel good. It's a little improvement in your life. You feel, you, you know, you feel good about it. But how many of you know that a physical change isn't a true and lasting change? How many of you know you get a new hairstyle, but it's still the same old you? Right? You know what I'm saying? right? It's just a physical change because we recognize that our true self is actually much deeper than just our body. Now, that does not mean that our body is bad or should be ignored, but it does mean that there is something deeper than our body. And and the next aspect, so the first aspect of our self and human nature is our body. The second aspect that we need to understand in order to understand transformation and change is our soul. Our soul. Now, our soul is the unseen part of me that includes my mind and my emotions. So when I have, I told you I saw Chad, I'm seeing his body, but when I have a conversation with Chad, I am, I am experiencing his soul, right? His mind and his emotions. You know what I'm saying? When, when you get into a bad mood, Not that any of you ever do, but when you get into a bad mood, what part of you is it that gets into a bad mood? It is your mind and your emotions. Now, that is connected to your body, but it's a distinct part, a distinct aspect of your body. Your your soul is that voice in your head. You know what I'm saying? It's the part of you that, that cannot be seen but that it controls aspects of your life. And this part of ourselves is oftentimes controlled by our experiences, our education, and even the environment around us. Right? Uh, Everybody, if you've ever been into a restaurant that just has, like, great mood, what is it that creates this great mood? It's a feeling, right? What is it that creates the feeling, 
It's these physical things, the good lighting, the music at just the right volume level, just the right playlist that makes you feel a certain way. Right? You know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that unseen part of you that's shaped by the environment around you. And Dallas Willard, a great Christian philosopher, says this, that it is like a, your soul is like a computer that runs the operations of a business. It's behind the scenes. It's like Amazon. You know, we see the, the, the website or whatever from, for Amazon. But behind the scene, there's all these computers that are running the operations of the business that you generally never even think about until something goes wrong. And the same is true in our, our life. That our soul is like that, that computer that causes the operations of our life, runs the operations of our life that we often don't even think about until something goes wrong, right? An emotional breakdown, right? And until things, behaviors, attitudes become so toxic that they begin to affect the environment around us. What is that? That is our soul. And so oftentimes we seek to address the need for change simply by addressing perhaps the body, but perhaps also the soul of a person. We think, man, if, we, if they could just get some more education, if they just had a better social environment, if we could just improve the atmosphere around them, then they would really experience transformation. Now, let me say this. All of those things are important. And again, the gospel applies to all of those things. But ultimately, there is a transformation much deeper than that, much deeper than the soul. It's what the Bible calls the spirit. That's why we say things like this. If we do something that we don't like, we do something that, you know, we didn't perhaps mean to do, we say something like, that's not my heart. You ever said something like that? That's not who I really am, right? As if there is part of us that wants to do something and then part of us that doesn't want to do something. Who knows what I'm talking about, right? We know this biblically, but it's also true experientially. There is a deeper part of us, and that's what the Bible calls our spirit or our heart. You see, your spirit, you are triune being, body, soul, and spirit, and your spirit is the eternal imago Dei aspect of your humanity. It is the part of you that is eternal. It's the part of you that when God said that he was going to make you and make mankind in his image, what was he talking about? He was talking about your spirit. In other words, every person is made in the image of God, is an eternal being with a spirit. That's why every person has value. That's the whole basis of human rights. You see, a human has different rights, and we understand this, that a human has different rights than uh, an oak tree has. Like, you should be nice to the oak trees, but how many of you know that's a different, there, there's different rights for a person than there is for an oak tree? Why? Because a person has a spirit. A person was made in the image of God. The spirit is the executive control center from which life originates. It's the very core of who you are as a person. It's your spirit that causes you. You see, your mind is thinking things, has thoughts, but there's something behind your mind. There's something deeper than your mind that causes you to have those kinds of thoughts. It's your spirit that gives you 
the inclinations that you have, whether it is for good or for evil. It's your spirit. And, and the Bible tells us that the condition of all of humanity, as we are body, soul, and spirit, we are made in the image of God, but that when we are born, our spiritual condition is that we are dead. We are dead. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam, all die. Even so, as in Christ, all shall be made alive. So when you are born, your body is alive, but that eternal inward part of you, your heart or your spirit, the Bible says that it is dead. You see, sin has cut off your spirit from the source of life, from God. And just as if I cut my arm off today, I could paint my fingernails, I could make it look real pretty. It's a weird thought, but I could do it. But my arm would, be, would die, right? Co correct? I'm not a scientist. I'm going out on a limb here, but my arm would die. I know it's weird. I'm not, I'm not advocating this sort of thing. I'm just using it as an illustration to say, if I cut off my arm, it's disconnected from its source of life. Therefore, it dies. And that's the condition of every person, man, woman, boy, and girl, born, cut off from the source of life, God himself. But the good news of the gospel is this, that even as this death began to spread to all of mankind through this disconnection from God through sin, that God had a plan for redemption. And Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet in, verse 30, in chapter 36, verse 26 says this, he prophesies this work of God, this transforming, not just outward conformity, not just transformation of the soul, but this spiritual transformation. He says this, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. What a declaration of God's intention that there would be a transformation from the inside out. I don't know if I have these, these uh, charts or illustrations to put up, but if you could envision those three aspects, your body is an, ex, uh, an outward circle, and then within that, your soul, and within that, your spirit, when the Holy Spirit works in your life, there it is. Thank you so much, guys. Let's give him a round of applause back there. Working with me last minute. Okay, there you go. So body, soul, spirit. That's those three aspects of who you are. Now, when, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, let's go to the next one if we have it. How does transformation come? You can dress up the outside. You can change your hair. You can even try to change your soul, you can change, you know, put on a new playlist, change the vibe in the room. You can read a good book, get some inspiration. But ultimately, all of those things are transforming or attempting to transform from the outward in. They are what I would call behavior modification. But ultimately, only the gospel, only the work of Jesus Christ has the ability to transform a person at the deepest level, not just outward transformation, but inward spiritual new life. 
And, and, and if I could illustrate that, it would look like this. If we had the next chart, here's what happens in those three aspects. Your body, your soul, and your spirit are all affected by the gospel. Here's what it looks like if I could show you the, the anatomy of a transformed life. The Holy Spirit is moving and begins to move upon you, begins to, begins to impact your heart, begins to cause your heart to be softened. And then there is the gospel or the word of God that comes into your life. And when those two things come together, there is a regeneration that comes in your spirit. There's a new life that comes in your spirit. Now, I know some of you are like, this is way too technical. Uh, how can that actually happen when the word comes and the spirit comes? There's this transformation that happens in your life. There's new life that comes by information. Well, you, how many of you remember when you first heard about the birds and the bees? Some of you remember. If you do not remember, meet me after the service. We'll have a talk. I hope you get it all figured out. But I remember the first time I heard, my parents gave me that talk, and I remember thinking, what? How does that work? How does that happen? Ugh. I've since had a change of mind, but... I thought there was like a stork that came. There was a bird that came, and it just dropped off a little baby. But here's how new life happens. There is a transfer of information, right, that produces life. We, we have discovered even in recent years DNA that is information, that when the DNA from the mother and the father come together, there is new life that happens. That's what happens when a man or a woman is born again. The Holy Spirit is working in their heart. Oftentimes there's something that happens in their life that begins to draw them to Jesus, begins to open up even their soul so that they are receptive to the work of God. That's why so many people come to Jesus through difficult circumstances, through very hard situations, not because that's the only moment that God is drawing people, but oftentimes that's the only moment where their soul is open to receive what God is doing. <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit works in their heart and produces this new life. But here's what I want you to understand. That new life that begins in your spirit affects every aspect of your life. It, it, you cannot get it in through your body. You don't just, you can go to church. You can, you can, Read, even read your Bible, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in your heart and in your life, there is no transformation. But when that transformation happens, it begins to affect the other aspects of your life. When your spirit is born again, it begins to affect your mind. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When something happened in your spirit, perhaps it was a moment that you can pinpoint or perhaps there was something that happened and you just began to recognize, I'm no longer thinking the way I used to think. You know what I'm saying? I'm no longer wanting the things that I used to want. Or perhaps now I want those things, but I actually have a conflicted will. You see, if you have a conflicted will, it's not a sign that you have not been born again. It actually is a sign that you have been born again. Before I was born again, I, I, I had no conflict. I just wanted to do, and I did what I wanted to do, the things that gratified the flesh. 
Who, who knows what I'm talking about? You would do things and you just think, this is awesome. This is great. The next morning you'd wake up, remember what your name was, and do it again, right? But suddenly something happens on the inside of you and you start going, man, I'm not so sure that I want to keep doing these things that I've always done. It's what the Bible calls repentance. That's why we call people so many Sundays, we call people to make a decision for Christ. Just like Levi, Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't say, you just follow me in your heart. He said, you need to get up. You need to make a decision to respond, to change your thinking in order to receive the life that I am offering to you. It affects the way you think. But it doesn't just affect the way you think, it also affects your body. It affects your body. You no longer can use your body just the way you, however you want to use your body. You, you begin to, perhaps, you do the things that you used to do and you feel like, man, this is not what I'm supposed to do. What is that? It's the new spirit working its way out into your body. It's the anatomy of transformation. It's the way that God makes people new. It's a new spirit within them that begins to change the way that they think, that begins to alter the way they behave. That's why water baptism is so important, because it is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. You are saying, I am bringing my body into obedience with Jesus. I am recognizing this transformation that has happened on the inside of me. And here's what we often don't understand is that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, there is an immediate transformation that happens. How many of you remember a moment that it was like something happened to me at that moment? Put, put your hand up. So many, many of you. How many of you, you, you experienced a more ongoing transformation? Some of you, some of you, yeah? Well, the, the reality is that the, this transformation is both immediate and ongoing. Right? It, it's immediate, but then there's a process of it working its way into your life. That's why sometimes we see people that are followers of Jesus, but they don't look a whole lot like Jesus. Why? Because there's still this process working out in their lives. But Paul said it this way, that, that I labor in the Spirit in Galatians 4.19. My little children, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about this inward transformation that's beginning to affect every aspect of our lives. That's the way that the gospel changes people. It's not an external transformation. It's from the inside out. This week we saw, now I just want to talk about how that looks. We could probably pass the mic in this room. And some of you may tell your stories. You would have a story of transformation. You'd have a story. I, I remember when I sat with Ricardo the first time, and God was stirring his heart, and he had not been following Jesus. But I remember sitting in the courtyard at East End Market and having a conversation, and I just felt so prompted by the Holy Spirit, share the gospel with him and invite him to respond. And with tears in his eyes, he said, yes, I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Now, yeah, that's good to clap for now, that doesn't mean that, you, that didn't, I didn't look up and Ricardo looks like a totally different person, right? He was still as good looking as he was before. But that process is working its way out in his life. Every one of us, we are, if we are 
followers of Jesus, we are being transformed into his likeness. And I, I want you to know that nothing is more attractive to the world around us than the life of Jesus being manifest in our lives. Nothing is more attractive than a person that says, you know what, I don't have it all together, but God's at work in my life. This week we saw, perhaps you saw, as I did, a beautiful example of the life of Jesus manifesting in a person. This week there was a, a moment as a, in a, the conclusion of a, a, a murder trial in Dallas, Texas, when the brother of the victim got up and took the stand and addressed the murderer of his brother. And he sat there, and you could see physically he was a bit uncomfortable, but he sat there, and, and he said to this woman, although he had every reason to point the finger, although he had every reason to, to be angry at this woman, he looked at this woman and he said this, I, I actually want the best for you. He said, I don't want you to rot and die like my brother did. I actually want the best for you. He said, I can't even speak on behalf of my family but, but I don't even want you to go to jail. What is that? It's a heart of grace. It's a heart of grace. It's the transformed heart. He said this. He said, my desire for you is the, that you would have the best life possible. And my brother would hear, was here. He would say this too. Give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. How many of you saw that moment? He asked the judge then, can I, can I hug her? Man, I was watching this moment, just tears running down my face. I thought, what a picture of Jesus. What a picture. This was not a marketing ploy. This was not something that was, that was forced on him by anyone else. What is that? That's the life of Jesus, the very nature of Jesus, the one who told us to bless those who curse us, the one who told us to, to love our enemies. It was the Life of Jesus. One commentator I said is the I saw said this that the world needs more of that. To which I would say yes and amen. What a transformation! Only the good news of Jesus can transform people's lives like that. If you know me, I love stories of communities that have been transformed. Not just individuals, but what does it look like when this gospel transformation happens in the life of a whole community? I love stories of history where God has moved in a way that there's this whole transformation in a community and, and the nature of Jesus begins to manifest in a community and it begins to look a little bit like heaven on earth. I've told you before the story of the Bethel or the Bethel community in Germany in the 1930s. It was a home for disabled children and uh, run by Frederick von Bodelschwing which is just a fun name to say. I know I'm not saying it right, but Frederick von Bodelschwing. And uh, the Bodelschwing set up this home for children who were disabled, who were outcast in the rest of society. And um, as the, the Nazi reign spread across Germany, the day came that they showed up at the Bethel community and they demanded for the children to be turned over to the, the SS soldiers and Frederick von Boldoschwing stood face to face with the Nazi um, soldiers and said, I, I will not turn them over. I will not turn them over. He said, we actually don't answer to the Fuhrer in this place. We answer to Jesus Christ. 
And so you can say what you want, but we're not going to turn them over. What is that? That's the nature of Jesus being formed in a community. I love the story of the Jesus people movement that happened in the 1960s. I love to tell these stories of what it looks like when the life of Jesus is formed in a group of people. If you're familiar with the story in the 1960s as the hippie movement, free love movement was spreading across America, across the world, uh, there was a man named Ted Wise who lived in uh, the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. And one day he was on an LSD trip and the Holy Spirit appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him. Now, Remember, it's that the Spirit is at work in his life. The Holy Spirit was working. It wasn't the LSD. The Holy Spirit was working in spite of those things. So don't do LSD. But, <laughs> but the Holy Spirit, Jesus appeared to him and, and spoke to him and actually transformed his life in a moment. And he began to recognize that the love that he was looking for in free love and illicit sexual relationships and the The transcendence that he was looking for through drug use was actually found in the person of Jesus. And his whole life in that moment was transformed, and they began to go around preaching the gospel all over that district in San Francisco. Lives began to be turned around, and that movement that started in that little area in San Francisco spread around the world. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of hippies transformed by the love of Jesus. What is that? That's the power of the gospel to transform a life. This week I heard another story. Is it okay to share another story? I heard another story this week that I had never heard of before, and it's the story of the the, uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary, what is often called Angola. Anybody heard of Angola before? It, It carries the name of the slave plantation that was on the property that the prison now sits on. And this prison through the 1990s was the bloodiest prison in America. It it was the most violent prison in America. And there was a a warden that was assigned to the prison named Burl Kane. And when Burl Kane came to the prison, and this is a, a true thing, look it up, Google it when you leave today. But when Burl Kane came to that prison, he, he didn't want the job because he knew that they would just go through warden after warden after warden. The warden would be able to hold it together for a few years, and then violence would break out. And so he thought, man, this is going to be the end of my career. And uh, he tells a story about how he was presiding over the first execution under his watch there at Angola Prison, and how uh, he remembers the moment that the, the, the uh, life left the body of the inmate, and as he looked at that inmate's body laying there, the life, the spirit out of his body, his heart was broken. He said to himself, I, I didn't even talk to him about his soul. He remembered the words his mom had spoken to him when he got the job at the prison. He, that she said, you will give an account for the souls of those men. And when he looked at that body, that lifeless body laying there, he thought, oh my goodness, I didn't even talk to him about his soul. And he made a decision that day that he was going to seek the spiritual transformation of that prison through the good news of Jesus Christ. A short time later, the funding for the education program in the prison was, was uh, cut. The Pell Grants were revoked. And the, the, the state decided that there was no value educating prisoners who Half of them were going to spend the rest of their life in prison under a life sentence. 
And so Warden Kane uh, had heard of a local Bible college, and he thought, you know what, maybe this Bible college would uh, provide education for the inmates here. And he thought, it's a long shot. I'm not sure if they'd be open to it. But they approached the local Bible college, and they said, hey, our funding for our education program was cut. Would you consider having a Bible college here in the prison? And that local Bible college said, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. And he said, well, it can't be, um, it has to be open to everybody. It can't just be for Christians and the, the state can't fund it at all. We've got to keep the separation of church and state. And the Bible college said, yep, no problem. We'll fund it. We'll do it. And they began this little Bible class in the prison just, with just a small group of the inmates coming to that prison uh, Bible study. And as they began to study the Bible, this life of Jesus began to transform them. The Word of God became active in their lives. They, they began to be, as Jesus says, born again. They began to experience this inward transformation. One of the prisoners says this. You can see it online. He says that, that when that happened, he began, he began acting differently in the prison. No longer was he engaging in violence on the prison yard, but he now began to preach on the prison yard. That place that was the... The, the stronghold of violence, every day he would stand up and he would preach, turn your life to Jesus. God loves you. He has a plan, has a purpose for your life. Regardless of where you're at in this world, God is not done with you. Turn your life to Jesus. Then inmates began to experience this life, this inward transformation. They began to be born again. They were drawn into this Bible college, enrolled in the Bible college, and bit by bit, transformation began to happen in this Bible college. After a couple of years, there was hundreds of graduates who had gone through the Bible college who are now ordained pastors, transforming the whole culture of the prison. And in fact... Uh, they, they used to not have any churches in the prison, but now they have over a dozen churches, one of which is over 800 inmates. A church in the prison. This is a picture of it. Total transformation of people who society would call them throwaways, worthless, unable to be reformed, but the power of God broke out in their life, transformed them from the inside out. One man said this, we used to have gangs in the prison. We still have gangs, but now the leaders of them are pastors. There's one gang that's called Malachi Dads. Pretty tough name. Used to be a street gang, but now has become a, a, a program to rehabilitate the men in the prison so that when they leave the prison, they know how to be fathers to their children. Total transformation. It, it, the, the violence rates plummeted in the prison. The, the murder rates plummeted. The rest of the state and, and neighboring states began to say, what is happening at Angola? And one day, Burl Cain tells the story. He was in the shower, and the Holy Spirit just gave him his next step, his next assignment, that he was to begin taking these prisoners who were now ordained pastors, and he was to begin sending them out two by two to the other prisons uh, around the state and around the country. He said, Jesus sent them out two by two. I think that's a pretty good pattern. So he began to send them out, and all the other prisons were going, hey, you know what? I don't even know about Jesus, but if it's working for you, we need that here. 
Transformation. Transformation. What an amazing, amazing example of the new life that only Jesus can give. The reality is that for every single one of us, perhaps we're not in prison physically, but the reality is that apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us is in prison to our own sinful nature, our own sinful desires that are working out, as the Bible says, these, these desires that are at war with our soul. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ transforms people's lives. Perhaps today you're not in that physical prison, but perhaps you would say something like this, I was raised in a broken home. I was filled with pain. I began to look for ways to numb the pain. I began to use drugs first recreationally, then as a pattern, and then as a habit. And I became addicted to numbing the pain with substances. But when Jesus came into my life, when the power of the Holy Spirit broke into my life, suddenly I experienced a joy that was greater than any high that I had ever experienced. I've been born again. Perhaps your story would maybe be more like this. I lived for success, and I was good at it. My, my constant drive to succeed turned my life into a pressure cooker. I lived under pressure for performance, but one day I heard the gospel and was shaken to the core by the good news that my position in life is not determined by where I fall on the org chart, and my value is not determined by how many zeros are on my paycheck. I realize that I'm valuable because I'm loved by God and my position is secure because I am a child of God. Now I work not out of pressure, but out of pleasure to serve the Lord, a transformed life. Perhaps your story would be more like this. My story, I grew up as a church kid. I, I, I had the perfect Sunday school attendance record and I knew all the right answers. But beneath the gold star charts, there was a longing for acceptance over time, that longing for acceptance turned into a drive to please people. I, I wanted people to think well of me, and I became enslaved to the acceptance of others. The fear of man became so real in my life that I developed social anxiety, and I was afraid to even stand in front of people. But the good news of Jesus, the gospel, has transformed me, has helped me to understand that regardless of what anybody else thinks about me, regardless of how well you think about me or don't think about me, that I am loved by God, I'm accepted by God, that the one who knows everything about me, knows the worst things about me, loves me the most. I've been transformed by the love of God. Amen? Would you stand to your feet today? Worship team, you can.